It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Wednesday, April 19th. We have so much to talk about, especially because Matt was out last week. Fernando Tatis Jr. is coming back tomorrow. Mookie Pets might play shortstop. The Twins have one stolen base. One. The Jazz Chisholm catch kind of ruined my weekend. I'm going to totally explain all that. This is going to be hilarious. You're going to love it. And of course, Matt and I uh, have a couple of guys we need to talk about. And be excited about my guy because his story is super interesting. Matt, very, very briefly, um, welcome back. Hello. Last week, you weren't here. I talked to Adam Berry about the Rays. Since then, Jeffrey Springs has undergone Tommy John surgery, which is a tremendous bummer. On the other hand, they are up 7-0 in the fifth inning. And um, they have Taj Bradley, who has apparently looked great. The Rays are going to be fine. And I wanted to just bring that up because Yandy Diaz hit another home run today. And we're not going to get into Yandy Diaz takes. But since you weren't here last week, I said, I really want to talk about Yandy Diaz. But I can't do it until Matt is here. And now we got too much other stuff to talk about. I swear we're talking about Yandy Diaz next week. So here's the first thing. Fernando Tatis Jr. is coming back tomorrow. And he is coming back to a Padres offense that has the 23rd most runs scored, the 21st best on base percentage. I don't know how much you've been watching AAA El Paso games, uh, but Tatis in eight games hit seven homers with a 515 batting average and a 50%, not hard hit rate, a 50% batted ball over 100 mile an hour rate matt i have to admit i'm a little conflicted here like i'm excited tatis is a superstar we haven't seen him since 2021 and yet the reason he's not playing is because he got suspended for 80 games so i'm a little bit of oh should we be pumping that up but also i mostly just want to see him play so i'm going to swallow my tongue and look forward to it and say great great that's the right way to look at it i mean he he has you know served his time so to speak and we've had other players you know one of his current teammates once served a suspension for PDs and is now one of the most beloved players in baseball. I'm talking about Nelson Cruz. So um, it's obviously weird the, the first few days he comes back and, you know, especially in light of like all the weirdness around his suspension last year and his 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 injury um, riding a motorcycle that he kind of tried to hide. It was all a, all kind of a mess. It's been a while since he's played the majors. It will be cool to see him back on the field. It is clear the Padres need him. I was not paying that close attention to baseball last week when I was on vacation, but I did check in occasionally on social media, and it was like, oh, wow, Fernando Tatis homered again in the minors. I guess he is good enough for AAA. We, we, do, we, do, we do know that. I'm glad you said that. I, I've always kind of wanted to know what would like a superstar MLB player look like if he just played in AAA all season long, and I guess it's that. Uh, San Diego right fielders, and he's probably going to play right field, I would think, have hit 175. 224, 263, which is a pretty rough showing. Obviously, they were waiting for him to come back. It's been a real weird season for the Padres, right? So you expect Tatis will come back. You expect he'll hit well. You expect the outfield will be, I don't know, an adventure, but it'll probably be fine. Juan Soto is hitting 175. 
with a 366 on base. That's it's like a league average line because he's drawing a ton of walks. Um, but as you noted in our little shared document here, he's played 71 games as a Padre and he's hitting 220 with a 384 on base. I don't understand what's happening here because if you look at the underlying numbers, he's actually crushing baseballs. Like you look at the underlying stack cast metrics, 91st percentile and hard hit rate. And you'd say, okay, well, if he doesn't have production, he must be hitting it into the ground. No, he's got to the 88th percentile in barrel rate, which takes into account both exit velocity and launch angle. He's only eight for 20 on batted balls hit hundred miles an hour. Uh, that's a 400 batting average. The MLB average on those is 580. I would like to sit here and say, I have the magic answer as to why he's not finding success. I don't, but I do know that even though he's hitting one, whatever I said, He's Juan Soto, and the underlying metrics look great, and he's probably going to be fine, I hope. You would think. It's just like, you. you mean, last year, he, he got to San Diego, and there was this feeling of like, okay, he struggled for a couple months. It happens. Full season in San Diego. He'll prep. He'll get comfortable. Like, watch out. Juan Soto will be back. It's weird. He hasn't, like, produced, like, a superstar in, like, almost a calendar year, and it's it's kind of a—it's just weird. You know, but usually when we see these kinds of, you know, the underlying data that you alluded to, it happens eventually. But I think the Padres are kind of like, well, it'd be good if it started happening right about now because we could we could really need it. His, his at-bats still look the same. He still, you know, he still has that eye. He's obviously still drawing the walks. But it, it will happen, I think. It just sort of – it's it's really strange. It's kind of unexplainable other than stuff happens. He He is probably going to bat second behind Tatis ahead of Machado, which is like Tatis, Soto, Machado, and then Bogart's hitting fourth. That's, that's about as good as you can get. Uh, and he talked to Ken Rosenthal about this, and he said, I'm fine with it. Uh, they they want two righties behind me so that I don't get a lefty. Like I like the plan. That's fine. But he also had some interesting comments about how he doesn't actually like hitting second because he thinks the, the traditional number two guy is supposed to move runners over, which I guess was true. And like, 1984 or whatever but it just it's not the way the game works anymore right like mike trout hits second you know you you have the best hitters in your lineup generally hitting second the reason for that is twofold right uh anytime you don't have your best hitter guaranteed to bat in the first inning that's a huge mistake that is a gift to the other team but also uh, you don't usually want to hit them third because there's no lineup spot more likely to come up with nobody on and two outs so therefore you, you hit them second you know you have guy who can get on base hitting first hitting second i think it's going to be fine uh, and he did this a lot in uh, in D.C. as a national. But interestingly, if you compare his career hitting second and third, there's like 170 points worth of OPS difference. <laughs> like he's way better hitting third than second, which is a little confounding. Like I would do what the Padres are doing, but I have to admit a little trepidation as to, boy, this hasn't really worked for him that way. Like, And he doesn't seem to like it. How, how much do we take that into account? Yeah, I'm actually not sure it's it's actually all that confounding. Like if he if he said if he, he goes if he actually says, I think the role of the number two hitter is this traditional, very nineteen eighties role of like, you know, um you know, move the runners over, you know, that 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 kind of mentality, it seems to be bearing itself out in the numbers, you know, batting second for his career. 802 plate appearances, so that's not nothing. That's like, you know, this is more than like a full season of, of plate appearances. He slugs 426, which suggests he's like actually trying to do those things, like move the runner over. His slugging batting third, you know, 929 plate appearances is 532. Batting fourth, 663 plate appearances is 585. So I think that like it's clear he actually takes that to heart, that, that his approach seems to actually change when he hits second. Now, maybe in San Diego – 
in a much deeper lineup. Maybe his his lineup his 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 mentality will change. He actually also said to um, that's what he said to Ken Rosendahl as part of that same piece. He said the second hole, I can do it here with the lineup we have. I'll be fine. I was up in D.C. I was upset to be hitting in the second hole. I tried to tell manager Dave Martinez <laughs> he did what he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> kind of you know, throwing Martinez under the bus right there. So I, I, it actually kind of makes sense that that the, the numbers match up what he says about his, his mentality. So we'll see if that changes with you know a much deeper lineup that it, that he's going to be hitting in. Yeah, you quickly, you know what this reminds me of is a couple of years ago we talked about whether the Braves were wasting Ronald Acuna Jr. by hitting him leadoff, where he was guaranteed to have nobody on at the start of the game, and he kept saying, "But I like hitting leadoff. I love it. This is what I want to do." And at a certain point, it's like, well. Are you giving back any minor gain a batting a batting lineup change could give you if you're just making the guy uncomfortable? Because obviously that's probably the biggest part of a manager's job is putting his guys in position to succeed. Um, speaking of which, we're going to talk about a superstar who's maybe going to play shortstop. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Each week, we move into our three batter minimum where we pick three of the most interesting topics to get into. The first one, and we're so sad this didn't actually happen today, but fingers crossed it'll happen soon. Mookie Betts might play shortstop. Think about the Dodger shortstop situation over the last uh, like eight years or so. Corey Seager, excellent player. Uh, Corey Seager and Trey Turner up the middle. Fantastic. Then Trey Turner. And then it was going to be Gavin Lux. Then he got hurt. And then it was going to be Miguel Rojas, and he's kind of banged up with hamstring and groin issues. And then it was going to be Chris Taylor, who hasn't played well, and he's out with left side soreness. And so Mookie Betts, who is on paternity leave right now, had talked a whole lot about wanting to play shortstop. And in today's game, unfortunately, he's not back from leave. So do you know who is playing shortstop today? I'm pretty sure, Matt, he was one of my guys from like a year and a half ago. Luke Williams, who was, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, the guy who like had the huge hit to help Team America qualify for the Olympics and then like a couple of days later hit a walk-off home run for the Phillies <laughs> one of his first games. And he's bounced this around. Sounds familiar. Yeah, right. I remember this guy. And he went to the Giants and he went to the Marlins and he was uh, playing shortstop for the Dodgers at AAA. And now he's starting in today's game for, for the Dodgers at shortstop. Um, the Dodgers shortstops are hitting 122, 195, 297. And obviously you lose your starting shortstop in spring training for the season. That's brutal. But man, Mookie Betts might play shortstop. This has to happen now. If it doesn't happen now, I will be so disappointed because I've gotten myself all jazzed up for the idea that Mookie Betts is going to play shortstop. It better happen tomorrow if it's not today. I'm so excited about this. Knowing at the same time, this is terrible for the Dodgers that this is their situation. Yes, although he's probably going to be pretty good at it, right? Like Mookie Betts is just an incredible baseball player, an incredible athlete. You know, he's got you know, he hadn't played second base for years, and then 
over the last couple over the last few years in the majors, he's played a few times and has acquitted himself quite well. And I think that like it's obviously harder, but like he literally might be, you know, the top five baseball players in the world, like top three. I don't know. Maybe the best athlete in the majors. Like I, I think it's. I, I'm excited to see it. I hope it happens. Yes, I understand why. Like it doesn't speak well of the Dodgers' depth right now. But you know, I guess it speaks more to sort of the cascade of effects of like now who has to be an everyday outfielder as a result of Mookie Betts playing shortstop. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. If Mookie Betts is playing shortstop, he's not playing right field. Which makes your outfield, James Outman, has actually been pretty good. Trace Thompson and Jason Hayward and Chris Taylor. Um, it's not great. I, I wanted to mention something that I, I asked our, our our research friends to look up and actually had to call the uh, Elias Sports Bureau for this. Do you know what the record is for the most games played in a major league career before the first start at shortstop? Mookie Betts right now has played 1,130 games, has not started at shortstop. The all-time record is actually a recent Dodger, and I did not realize this, although he did this with the Blue Jays. Noted catcher Russell Martin got into 1,714 games before he started at shortstop for the Blue Jays back in 2018. So even over the last 30 years, Mookie Betts would only be fifth most on this list. Matt, if you remember that Kelly Johnson played started at shortstop for the Mets in 2015, a year they went to the World Series, I do not remember that. I remember Kelly Johnson going back and forth from the Mets to the Braves. I do not remember him playing shortstop. I am sure I was not as excited as I would be for Mickey Betts to play shortstop. Well, I'm looking at the list here, and the the list of names is uh, fantastic of players who had more starts at uh, more games played before the first start shortstop. Russell Martin, Kelly Johnson, Jeff Cirillo, and Eric Young. Just, yep, just love love remembering some guys right there. the Kelly Johnson game was uh, September 27th, so it was after the Mets had clinched the clinched the division. So I'm guessing it was just like, a, you know, hey, let's let's have some fun. That might have been the game where like Max Scherzer start uh, no hit them with like, uh, you know, Ooh, 19 strikeouts. Maybe. And now I got a good look. I'm not going to do it while we podcast. That would be unprofessional. Topic two: the Minnesota Twins in this year, the year of the stolen base, have exactly one stolen base. This is the wildest thing. All we're talking about. The stolen base success rate. Cleveland and Baltimore at the moment are tied with 25 stolen bases. There are two teams right now who have a 100% success rate. The Red Sox and the Royals have not been thrown out yet. There are, let's see, seven different teams with a 90% success rate. The Mets, for example, have tried 22 times. They've been successful 20 times. Baltimore's 25 out of 28. The Twins are one for three. And what this says to me is, it seems a big competitive disadvantage in the current environment to not be able to steal. If you are that successful, not the Twins, obviously, but the other teams, that seems to me like you're leaving steals on the on the table. You should be stealing more until such time as you are not perfectly successful at stealing. But I, I don't look at this as going like, hey, what's wrong with the Twins? Why aren't they smart? Sort of look at this as Rocco Baldelli having absolutely nobody to steal with. So if you look at the top 14 guys in terms of playing time, on their team, uh, tw- 11 of them are of below average speed. Three of them are of average speed. The only guy who's got any speed whatsoever is Byron Buxton, who is not going to steal because he's trying not to get hurt. He's not even playing the outfield right now. So if you're Rocco Baldelli, are you really saying, man, I should be sending Ryan Jeffers and Christian Vasquez more down to second base? Probably not. You know, you kind of work with what you got. But even so, if he's, it's not so much a team decision, just it is, this is the roster you have. And I think this is going to be an issue for the Twins. Like, there's so much value out there, and they just can't do it. 
No question. I mean, the, the, the Buxton thing is kind of sad for a couple of reasons, just like like the fully operational Byron Buxton is such a fun player. So the fact that he's only DHing right now, not playing the outfield, and not running at all, I mean, you know, there was, I guess it was not not that too not too long ago. I guess it actually probably was kind of long ago at this point. Sadly, 2017, he was 29 for 30 in, in stolen bases. That was like the only time he's ever played more than 100 games in a season. Um, but even 2019, he was 14 for 17. So like he was a high. Last year he was six for six, but only tried six times in in 92 games. So that's that's kind of a bummer. But you're right. Like it's not like they have a lot of other options. And I think that like it's a huge disadvantage, especially late in games, because like it's well known i think at this point that the the pitchers who are as a group that are worst at holding runners are late inning relievers um they've generally generally just been the slowest to the plate maybe that'll change with the new rules over time as they realize they have to be quicker to the plate but they haven't fully adjusted to that but like in close games being able to steal bases is easier than ever because the because of the the new rules on uh, disengagements those slash those to first the bigger bases and the fact that relief pitchers are known for being slower to the plate. So the fact that they cannot take advantage of that really, really hurts them. And it hurts a lot of these other teams that we we kind of we kind of talked about, like the like the Dodgers and the and the Rockies as well. I'm gonna ask a question without knowing the answer, and I'm going to slowly ask this so I can look it up. Do you know if or where okay, the answer is no. Terrence Gore is employed. The answer is nowhere. He's a free agent. This is exactly the kind of team who could use a Terrence Gore type, right? He's only He's 31 years old? Wow, I thought he was so much older than that. Or like, I don't know, whoever the next Terrence Gore is in the minors, like 21-year-old Terrence Gore. This is a team that could absolutely use that. It reminds me of last year where Rocco Baldelli, the manager, got killed by Twins fans for never letting his starters go deep into the game. You know, always taking them out after two times through. And it's like, yeah, but his starters are like Chris Archer and, and Dylan Bundy. Like, what are you trying to have happen here? Like, they, Those guys aren't even in the majors right now. Now he's got good starting pitchers and they're going deep. Like you kind of work with the roster you have, but I I would not be shocked at all if they try to find some kind of speed component here. Can I ask you a trivia question before we move on Ooh. to our next topic? Yes, because <laughs> it's it's related to this because you mentioned the the um, the Guardians and Orioles both having twenty five steals and they are both I'm putting in the big big air quotes on pace for like two hundred and fifty steals more than two hundred. So two two part trivia questions. Do you know the last team to steal two hundred bases in a season? And do you know the last team to steal two hundred and fifty bases in a season? I can tell you that I don't, so I'm just gonna default to the nineteen eighty one Oakland A's or whatever like Ricky's <laughs> peak was. The last team to steal 200 bases in a season was the 2007 Mets, you know, peak Jose Reyes. I think that might have been one of the last, like, might have been one of the last 77, one of the last um, 70 steal seasons by an individual player. Um, they actually they actually had an 80% success rate that year. Also, David Wright was really, I think that was the, his 30-30 year. So that was, um, the, they had an 80% success rate. The last team to steal 250 bases in a season was the 1992 Milwaukee Brewers. Wow. Who had like a sixty nine percent? Who had a sixty nine percent success rate that season? That was the year that passed Pat Listach won Rookie of the Year, and I think he stole like fifty something bases. Um, a rookie, John Jaha, was ten for ten somehow. <laughs> so anyway, thought I'd blow your mind with some 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 live trivia on the podcast this week. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just looking at this quickly. Oh, Daryl Hamilton stole forty one that year. They had eleven guys 
with double digit steals. I will not bore you by naming them all. That's a great trivia fact. All right, let's talk about something insane. What's the point of having your own podcast if you can't talk about insane things that happen to you on social media? Here's the thing. I hope you missed all this. I hope you were flying back from France and didn't notice any of this. You're a wiser man than I. You're barely on Twitter anymore anyway. So Jazz Chisholm famously has moved from second base to center field this year. And in the first week of the season, it didn't go well, right? Like some pretty high profile mistakes. So on Sunday evening, afternoon, whatever, they're playing the Diamondbacks. And I happened to look at our stack cast tool and I say, oh, hey, just just made a pretty nice catch there. It was a liner to the gap off the bat of Josh Rojas. And it was one of those plays like Kevin Kiermaier was famous for. Um, Juan Lagares was great at this kind of play, making it look easy, right? So Jazz had 60, had to go 60 feet. He had 3.7 seconds to do it. He did it. And that comes out to a 25% catch probability. That's a really, really good play. Easily the best of his short center field career so far. And the reason it didn't look like much is because he got a fantastic jump on the ball, right? And you can actually define that. Basically, what it means is in the first three seconds, how much further in the right direction did you go than average? And for him, it was almost eight feet. That is more than the length of his body. So if he has an average jump, he's eight feet short, maybe a Superman dive. If he has a below average jump, forget it. It's like a double to the gap. And for a lot of people, the eye test matched. I actually got a tweet from one of the Diamondbacks radio announcers who was like, oh, I thought that was going to slice the gap for a double. Let me tell you how mad people got about this. I could, I cannot tell you the number of dad coaches who are like, my grandma could have caught that and she's dead. And the reason for that is the act of catching the ball was not hard. I could have caught the ball the act of being in the right place to be in position to catch the ball is so difficult. And I think that kind of comes back to what, like what's so hard about defensive metrics is they don't always match the eye test. Like you should not get extra credit for having had a lousy jump and then making a Superman dive. And Matt, I can tell you want to have an opinion here, but before you do, I want to, I want to give you a number. Here is the number. 5,102,976. That is how many impressions of the tweet of the video I posted has because people were losing their minds. And also Mets fans got upset. I wasn't talking about Brandon Nimmo. I don't know what to tell you about that. People get nuts about defense. That's not a diving play. I don't know if we're ever going to get past this. <laughs> Thank you. I think that the, the the trickiest thing about defensive metrics, especially catch probability that I've realized over years and years of you know being involved in the weeds on stat cast metrics is that the most interesting catches from a catch probability standpoint are ones where the players made it look easy. And that's like, it's a, it's this huge disconnect. Cause like there's, there's like basically three types of catches, right? There's the diving catches where the guy got a bad jump and it looks amazing. And we don't want to pour cold water on it and be like, well, actually it was like a 90% catch probability. The guy just like took a terrible route and had a terrible jump, but you know, like the classic kind of like, you know, Jim Edmonds catch, that was his reputation. Right. So th- there's, the, there's one, then there's the ones where like, the guy makes the dive and the metrics are amazing because it, it matched the eye test. And like, those are cool too, but like, it's not surprising. In those cases, like the data is not really telling you anything you didn't already know. And then, then there's these plays, the Kiermaier plays, which are just so maddening to people because we're telling you, actually, this was difficult when it the player makes it look so easy. And like, that's like, people can't wrap wrap their heads around it still after eight, whatever, eight years of StatCast data. And I guess we'll just kind of have to, have to live with it. It's nice to see Jazz Chisholm making some 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 nice catches because he has looked brutal there in some of the games that I have watched. And obviously, it's his first season doing it. And 
growing pains were to be expected. So hopefully this is a sign of what's to come because it would be cool if he like sticks in center field and can be this dynamic defender and hopefully exciting offensive player as well. I have million impressions of me getting mad or people getting mad at me for saying a guy made a nice catch. The internet's a wonderful place. Quick breaking news before we take a break here. Uh, the, the Dodgers just put Miguel Rojas on the injured list with a strange strain. I'm not laughing at his injury. I'm laughing at the Dodgers situation. They've now recalled Yanni Hernandez. So they have both of their AAA shortstops, Luke Williams and Yanni Hernandez in the major leagues. Not what you want. Please let Mookie play shortstop. That's all I'm saying. We're going to take a break and Matt and I will come back and talk about a pair of guys you need to know a little bit more about. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Each week, we like to focus on a guy you should know a little bit more about. And Matt, since I know who your guy is, and I'm a huge fan of your guy, to the point where I actually had to go back and look and make sure I hadn't picked him before, because I thought for sure I would have, but I guess I didn't. You have the honor of going first, telling us all about who do you got? The player I'm picking this week is, I think, now in the conversation for the title of best reliever in baseball. You know, for a long time, the listeners of this podcast will know I used to, for for three years, I thought it was like Liam Hendricks, and then it was probably Josh Hader for a while, and then last year it was Edwin Diaz. Diaz and Hendricks are not pitching right now. Hader is not what he once was. And there's a lot of people in the conversation. I think Devin Williams is in the conversation. I think Emmanuel Classe is probably my pick, um, just based on current dominance and track record, because as we all know, reliever relievers can be very fickle and, you know, you could be burn hot for a few months and then go from being good to terrible very quickly, like as Josh Hader did last year, and then he got good again. So, um, but another name I want to enter into that conversation is Felix Bautista of the Baltimore Orioles, who has quietly over the last season plus been maybe not so quietly anymore, um, been incredibly dominant and really might be... Um, Staking a claim as the best reliever in claim, best reliever in baseball. With another scoreless inning last night and closing out the Nationals, Bautista now has eight and two-thirds innings pitched, 16 strikeouts, two walks. He has not allowed an earned run since opening day, has allowed one barrel all year. Um, perhaps most impressive, there have been 31 swings on his split-fingered pass ball this year, and 23 of them have been swinging strikes. It was actually 23 for 25 entering last night's game, and then he threw six splitters and did not get a swing and miss on any of them. But still, 23 for 31, also pretty impressive. Oh, and he also throws like 101 miles an hour. Um, last year when Dan Connolly uh, of the, the Orioles beat reporter for The Athletic, he pulled the Orioles' bullpen, and he asked each pitcher in the bullpen, if you could steal one pitch from another guy in the bullpen – whose pitch would you take? And the best part about the piece was that like every guy in the bullpen stole a pitch from Felix Bautista, but they were divided on which pitch they should steal. Like half of them were like, oh, I want his fastball. And the other half were like, oh, I want a split-fingered fastball. The guy is nasty. Oh, he's also six foot eight and 285 pounds, and he's known as the mountain. Um, so that's pretty cool too. 
And he also has a really cool origin story. He was originally signed by the Marlins in 2012. He, I, don't, I don't think he made it out of the um, Dominican uh, Dominican League, Dominican uh, Developmental League. Um, was released in January of 2015 and did not pitch that season. He did not sign again with Baltimore until August of 2016, 19 months later. He was like out of pro ball for 19 months and has like slowly worked his way through the minors. He's, and the thing is, he's barely pitched over seven minor league seasons. He threw a total of 222 innings. And now he's pitched 74 innings over two seasons with a 206 ERA and a 281 FIP. And like his just combo of his like, 100 mile an hour fastball with like he's a, he's the pitching ninja's dream with this like 100 mile an hour fastball and the split finger fastball they basically come out on the exact same plane and the the split splitter just like dives into the ground he's so much fun to watch he's enormous he's dominant um, Felix Bautista is my guy this week and also while we're on the subject about the best reliever in baseball have you seen what Jose Alvarado's doing for the for the Phillies I almost pivoted to him at the end of this it's insane. He's been one of my guys for – I, like, liked him for a while because when he's on, he's in, incredible, but he often, like, walks, you know, six guys per nine innings. This year, he's not walked a batter yet this season and has struck out 69% of the batters he's faced. It's actually pretty incredible. That's but the way that's, it goes. That's kind of an aside. You leave the Rays and you get better. I mean, that's just what people say about Tampa Bay Rays pitchers. Uh, love it on Bautista. I remember that his very first game last year, we had like one game of data. And I was like, wow, the vertical rise on this fastball is insane. I wonder if this guy's going to be a thing. And he was. And part of the reason people were apprehensive about the Orioles coming into this year is obviously they didn't do a whole lot to get starting pitching this winter. But it's like they stole a lot of games with the bullpen last year. And you were sort of wondering, could they do it again? And like Dylan Tate got hurt and Jorge Lopez was traded and they really needed Bautista to be a dude. And not only is he being a dude, he's being even better. So he's awesome. I'm totally with you on this. Here's my guy. My guy's got a pretty interesting backstory too. My guy is Jake Berger of the Chicago White Sox, who last night hit a home run 118.2 miles an hour. That is the hardest ever tracked ball by StatCast by a White Sox player, and with all due respect to Frank Thomas, is possibly the hardest hit ball a White Sox player has ever hit. I don't know if that's true. I'll never know. But 118.2 is pretty rarefied air, and it's really more impressive if you actually know how Jake Berger got here because it's a long and winding road. He was the number 11 overall pick by the White Sox in the 2017 draft, and that summer he went to the minors and he played in 51 games in uh, Kannapolis mostly in 2017. He played in zero games in 2018 and zero games in 2019 and zero games in 2020 due to a series of injuries. In 2018, he actually tore his Achilles tendon in spring training, got it repaired. Ten weeks later, he tore it again, just walking around in his house, which erased any progress he'd made in rehab. That ruined his 2018. Missed all 2019 because he had a bruised left heel. And then in 2020, there was no minor league season, and he was so desperate to play, he found something called, and I swear this is true, the Car Shield Collegiate League, which was formed after like a college league in his home state of Missouri was canceled, and they just we just need to find something to do. So here's a number one pick, first round pick, playing in the Car Shield Collegiate League, and he was pretty open about you know he was dealing with depression and anxiety, understandably because his career was just totally stuck. Got to the majors in 2021 and 2022, uh, you know, pretty good, 112 OPS plus, but he's a little stuck as a corner infielder DH on a team that is pretty much all DHs. You've got Andrew Vaughn, you've got Juan Moncada, you've got Eli Jimenez. 
it's still not quite clear where he's going to play, but this year, uh, and he's got five homers and 30 plate appearances. He's got an OPS North of 1300. He's still not that old. Like he's, you know, been around for a while, but he's only got 255 career major league plate appearances. It's not quite clear where he's going to fit in. Um, the White Sox are not off to a great start. They certainly need some offense. And just the fact that he's in the major leagues after all that is cool. So when I saw him hit that home run with that kind of exit velocity last night, I was like, that is awesome just based on everything he went through. And, you know, you kind of want to pull for a guy like that. And man, do the White Sox need some good news. So there's my guy, Jake Berger. Yeah, I think the the way you framed it, you know, that it's probably the hardest ball White Sox has ever hit. And you think of like Frank Thomas, you think of, oh my goodness, that guy used to punish the ball. And I'm sure he had his fair share. I mean, my guess is in his time, he probably hit the ball as hard as anyone. I would be curious to know. Um, I'm sure if we asked Tom Tango, he could probably give us a back-of-the-envelope esti- estimate of how hard some of these guys <laughs> hit the ball. But yeah, it's like it's possibly the hardest hit. And also, not to mention the fact that even in the last couple of years, you know, they've had guys like, they, or still have, Eloy Jimenez, who could hit the ball really hard. Um, Luis Robert, who could hit the ball really hard. So the fact that he's taken a step, step above those guys is pretty impressive. Yeah, the White Sox... 7-11 right now, they've been outscored by 20 runs. It just feels like they're already kind of just a step behind. I mean, it's not like Minnesota or Cleveland's running away with it, but like feels like they're a step behind them. I don't know what to make of that team. And, you know, now, you know, Moncada's hurt. Eloy Jimenez was hurt again, not surprisingly. He's back now, but he's not hitting. And it's just like... Who, like, what are they going to do? I mean, like, are they going to do a teardown? Like, they had that teardown, and they looked they were primed for, like, a run of contention, and now it's like, it feels like they kind of need to do it again. You know, since we're talking about the White Sox, I'd like to amend a statement I made maybe six weeks ago, which was uh, me guaranteeing that by August 1st, Tim Anderson would be playing shortstop for the Atlanta Braves. And I don't think that's true. The Braves are off to a good start, even though Orlando RCA got injured. Uh, you know, Von Grissom, they're going to give him some run. And I'm thinking to myself... Boy, what's a contending team I can think of that is like li- almost literally struggling to staff shortstop? Let's just have a good shortstop. Just find a shortstop. And I- I'm just sort of thinking maybe the Los Angeles Dodgers might end up with Tim Henderson. I don't want to trade him away from the White Sox. Obviously, the White Sox will still try to contend. Uh, but if it's not Tim Anderson for the Dodgers, I'm having a real hard time figuring out who it's going to be because Ahmed Rosario looks kind of a mess on both sides of the ball. And all I'm saying is Tim Henderson's going to be somewhere that's not Chicago starting to think it's going to be the Dodgers. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week. Bye.